as you're finding your way back to your seat, uh, I just want to take a minute and pray over our day today. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for another day. Thank you for another year, and thank you for an opportunity to start our year off at your feet, at your throne, worshiping you. And God, I pray that as we look to your word today, that this will set the tone for our year, for a year dedicated to you and what you have called us to as individuals and as a church. God, we love you. We trust you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So how's everybody doing? Everybody doing okay? Good. I heard like a few people say they were tired when Joel asked earlier. So hopefully you're a little more awake now after you've gotten to move around. But uh, regardless of how alert you are right now, uh, we just want to say thanks for coming to worship with us today. And whether you're here in person or you're joining us online, we never take it for granted. And if I haven't had an opportunity to meet you yet, my name is Dan, and I get to serve as the groups and outreach pastor here at our Carmel campus. And as we've said a few times today, it is officially 2023. Uh, I don't know how many of you stayed up last night. I did not. Uh, my neighbors, it was, they were nice, nice enough to wake me up a little after midnight with their fireworks. But other than that, um, it was a relatively, relatively quiet night. And so as we start this new year, it's the, the, it's the one day a year, one of the two days a year, I guess you could say, where as a culture, we take a minute and recognize the unrealistic resolutions and goals we set a year ago that we didn't achieve. Uh, maybe it's just me, but I don't really think it is because um, studies show that for decades, the same resolutions are made every single year. And for decades, people have made their resolutions in two main areas, physical health and fitness and financial health and fitness, I guess you could say. But the point of this is our culture is really bad about setting and achieving our goals. Um, and I think the reason why is because we tend to deal in extremes, right? Like we think that, oh, I'm a little bit off here, so I'm going to overcorrect and go to the opposite end of the spectrum. But we don't always take the time to take the, uh, the best approach and find, you know, the right step along the way. And so we try to jump from one end of a spectrum all the way to the other, which inevitably sets us up for failure. So we hear things like, I'm working out every single day this year for an hour as hard as I can. I'm only eating chicken and broccoli. Like I'm cutting out all unnecessary spending down to the penny. And like my retirement is going to double this year. When really maybe a better way to approach some of those things is to say, you know, I'm going to eat fewer Oreos every week this year or like, I'm just going to put some intentional steps in place to cut my impulse buying. Like those are a much wiser way to approach it. And I think rather than entering into 2023 saying like, hey, here's my big goal, my big resolution this year that if I just work hard enough at it, I know I can get it. A wiser way to approach it is maybe to just kind of hit the reset button and get back to the basics on some things. Because um, when we slow down, and we look at the steps that it takes to achieve some of our goals or some of our resolutions, whichever word you want to put on it, that's a much more tangible way to go about it is by making incremental change. In fact, I was listening to a podcast just this week, and the guest on this episode was a former Navy SEAL. And not only was he a Navy SEAL for a long time, but he led teams of Navy SEALs. And one of the things he said that struck me, and this was mostly about his leadership, but I think the truth applies, is that when his team would get back from a mission, and everything seemed to go just perfectly smooth, everything went just right, that was one of the most important times to gather the team 
and address incremental improvements. To go back to the basics on some of these things about keeping their gear clean, keeping their gear ready, or even just some, some team dynamics. Because sometimes it's best to hit the reset button when it seems like things are going really smoothly. And we see 2023 as a time to hit the reset button for our church. And it's not because anything has gone wrong. It's because we want to get back to the basics of what we believe that God has called Genesis Church to be. And honestly, part of it is because of the fact that over the last three years, there have been a crazy amount of really big events that a lot of us have never lived through before. Like there's been a global pandemic. There's been upheaval over race relations. There's been a divisive, very divisive national election. There's continued war in Ukraine, and there's been economic uncertainty all around the planet that has forced all of us to address our priorities, to address how it is that we spend our time. But the truth of the matter is, regardless of the external circumstances, our call as followers of Jesus to be disciples who make disciples hasn't changed. And so we want to hit the reset button and get back to the basics and talk about just that. We want to spend a few weeks now at the beginning of the year talking through our mission and vision as a church. We're going to spend some time specifically talking about the importance of prayer. And all of this is in preparation for a study on the book of Acts that's going to begin at the end of the month. But today, today I get to talk to you on the first day of the year about our mission as a church, which is this, helping people find their way back to God. And I don't know how long all of you have been around Genesis. My family and I have been here only about six months. But this is what I've learned, is that this has been the mission from the very first meeting of a group of people in an apartment in Noblesville 20 years ago. And from there, a small group moved into a class at Genesis, a classroom at Genesis Church. And they started to grow. And so they moved from there to a place in Noblesville and they continued to grow. And it was amazing to see, to hear what was going on. So they moved to a place in Westfield and then they eventually moved back to Noblesville where they finally settled in what is currently the Noblesville campus in 2007. But because this was the mission of helping people find their way back to God, the church continued to grow and they eventually expanded the amount of space they used in the building by raising the funds needed to build a kids area, a student area, and to allow ministry to happen throughout the week. And they eventually grew to three services on a Sunday morning. But then in 2012, God opened up an unexpected door and made way for our campus here in Carmel. And the church leadership at the time loved the idea of expanding and growing the church without having to build a bigger building and all of the, all of the headache that comes along with that. And 10 years later, our campus right here in the middle of Carmel is averaging over 400 people on most weekends. But it's also because helping people find their way back to God is our mission that we invest in church plants like in places like West Plains, Missouri, Newport, Kentucky, Miami, Florida, Bloomington, Illinois, or Bloomington, Indiana, sorry, and even in our own backyard here on the north side of Indianapolis. It's why we partner with organizations like Nehemiah Vision Ministries in Haiti, Opportunities Now in Myanmar, ICF Church in Albania, but also local organizations like Food for Souls and Shepherd Community Center. And all of this begs the question, why in the world do we do such things? Well, the answer is this. We do this because we believe that we are here to help people find their way back to God. Our mission, our goal as a church is to help as many people as possible find Jesus. 
And one of the things that we've learned over the last few years is that Sunday mornings, as great as they are, are no longer the best evangelistic tool to help people find Jesus. Like, I'm not saying they're not important. I think they're vitally important to our personal faith and, ex and extremely important to the health of our church. I'm just saying our culture has shifted so much that people going to church isn't the, priori isn't the priority that it once was. And, it's all, and for whatever the reason, they're just choosing to not engage. But I firmly, as great as these Sunday mornings are, I think a better way to go about this, and we think this as a church leadership, is to shift our efforts. Because we want to, see a we want to be a church of disciples that are making disciples. And so we're shifting our efforts to disciple-making. And we're, because what we're learning about disciple making is that there's a huge potential to bring in the harvest that Jesus has called us to. And when I say disciple making, I'm talking about the process of leading someone to Jesus, helping that person grow in their relationship with Jesus, and then releasing them to go and do the same for other people. This is how we believe that we can help even more people find their way back to God. That's how we can become a disciple-making church. That's how we see Genesis fulfilling Jesus' command of bringing in a harvest. And to, <clears throat> excuse me. And the only way to do this next to an act of God comes down to you. Like, it comes down to your willingness to say, I'm here, I'm available, I'm ready, let's go. And the truth of the matter is, some of you are already doing this, and you're doing it faithfully, and we can't thank you enough for that. Others of you are ready. You're, you're maybe sitting on the edge of your seat and you just want to know what the next step is and you're ready to go along with us. But honestly, there are some of us here today who this may not even be on your radar. And so as you hear me saying all of these things, you're probably thinking things like, what do I have to do? Like, why me? What do I have to offer this? And honestly, what is my responsibility even to be a follower of Jesus today? Well, fortunately for us, the Apostle Paul answered most of these questions in his letters to the Corinthian church. And what you need to understand about the Corinthian church in the first century is that it was full of people just like us, at least in the sense that they lived in a large modern city and had access to anything and everything they wanted. Because uh, Corinth was a, was a massive city of great importance in the Roman Empire. And because the empire had such an influence on the city, we can gather from Paul's writings that it was hard for these followers to live out the faith that they professed. And so if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, go ahead and make your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because that's where we're going to spend our time today. And before we get into it, I want to I point out the verse that is Paul's motivating factor. And it's verse 21 right here. And it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we look at Paul's ministry and what he wrote to different churches, it becomes clear that grasping that truth, that Jesus became sin so that Paul, so that you, so that me, so that we could become the righteousness of God, left Paul Paul in awe for the rest of his life. Look, when you come to grips with the fact with what Jesus has done for you, 
the only appropriate response is to live the way that he calls you to. And that's something that Paul never recovered from. And he never looked back after it changed the trajectory of his entire life. Because this is what, that's what's going on in Paul's heart and his mind as he writes these words in verses 14 and 15. He said, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, it's normal for Paul to use really strong language to get his point across in everything that we have of his that he wrote. But he uses this word compels here to make it clear that it's Christ's love for Paul that is the driving motivation for everything he does in his entire life. David Guzik put it this way. He said, Paul had to do what he did in ministry because he received so much from Jesus that it compelled him to serve others. And when you and I really grasp that, when we're really able to take hold of that, of the fact that Jesus became sin on our behalf, then that becomes the greatest foundation you could possibly have for ministry. Or maybe not even just ministry, because ministry is not what happens here on Sunday. Ministry is what happens as followers of Jesus live their everyday life. So when you can grasp that, you, that truth becomes the greatest foundation for every interaction you have. Because like I said, ministry doesn't happen on, here on Sundays. It doesn't just happen in your groups, and it doesn't just happen with our partners. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, it's meant to be the way that you live every single day. And that's what Paul's getting at in verse 15. Because you see, for Paul, he only lives because Christ lives in him. He makes that clear here, and he also makes that clear in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the same goes for you, and the same goes for me and anybody else who has placed their faith and their trust in Jesus. Because there's a death to the old self, but the good news is that there is new life in Christ. And because we find our new life in Christ, we should live our life for no one but Christ. And so as you put all of these things together and you start to get a glimpse of what's going through Paul's heart and his head, we, it's almost as if to say with these intense emotions, how, he's asking, how does the love of Christ not change you? How does this life-altering truth not impact every single area of your life? How does it not change how you spend your time, how you use your resources, how you see and interact with other people? David Woodall put it this way. He said, the death of Christ is more than a fact to be believed. It demands a lifestyle that needs to be lived. And we, when we start living the way Paul is describing, it starts to change how we see the world and the people in it. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And here's where Paul starts getting really practical, which is one of the things I always appreciate was when the Bible is very practical, but he gets practical, but he also gets really uncomfortable because he makes, if we follow his logic, he makes it clear that if we are alive in Christ, then we need to view others the same way Christ views us and the same way he views everybody else as dearly loved children of God. 
Just read through the Gospels and count the number of times that the authors say Jesus had compassion on a person or a group or even a city. And we start to get an idea for the way we are expected to view everyone else. It's because of that truth that Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, for followers of Jesus, it's expected that we see others the way Jesus does, regardless of where they live, what language they speak, how much money they make, who they voted for in the last election, or where they stand on any political issue. As followers of Jesus, it is expected of us that we view others the same way that we understand Jesus views us. It's because of that that Paul wrote verse 17. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. Now these words, has gone, can literally be translated as passed away. And what Paul wants us to understand more than anything else with with this verse is that the old you, if you are a follower of Christ, the old you was crucified with Christ on the darkest day in all of history. And that because of his resurrection, you are a new creation. And as a new creation, there are a couple things that come along with this. One is that you are automatically adopted into the family of God. And you are made a co-heir with Christ, according to Romans chapter 8. But the second thing that comes along with that is that you have an entirely new identity. And when you become this new version of you, your identity is no longer wrapped up in your ethnicity, your job, your tax bracket, your achievements, your skills, or anything else. The only identifier that matters anymore is that you are a new creation in Christ. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male or female. He's trying, he's going far above and beyond to help us understand that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have been adopted into one family. And that is the only thing that matters. And so if you're a new creation in Christ, That's the only identifier that matters. And Paul saw all of this as a gift of God's grace. And that's why he wrote in verses 18 and 19, this, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling himself, reconciling to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. You see, Paul goes on to double down, so to speak, um, on this idea that not only should the way we see other people and interact with other people be changed, but he goes on to say to his original audience that even though we we see people as Jesus did, we now need to carry the same message that Jesus did. And as a new creation... We have been entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation. Now, let me be clear. The accomplishment, like the reconciliation has already been accomplished. That's not on us. What's on us, what's been entrusted to us is the ministry of carrying that forward. 
And what we're carrying forward is we're helping people understand by the way we live that God took the initiative to reconcile all creation to himself. And so Paul illustrates this in verse 20 like this. He says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so this is where Paul is going with all of this. The old you is gone. It doesn't matter anymore. You're a new creation in Christ. And because you are a new creation in Christ, you have been given a great responsibility. You are an ambassador of God. And Paul, I think Paul is very specific in his word choice here. A lot of scholars believe that Paul actually had a genius level intellect. And it wouldn't surprise me, but I think he chose the illustration of ambassador here specifically because he was writing to Corinth. Because remember, Corinth was a very important, very large city in the empire. So the people who lived there would have understood um, how much honor came with certain political roles. And outside of Rome, to be made an ambassador was one of the highest honors that anybody could be given. Now, this wasn't like a brand ambassador or a social media influencer, okay? Like these people had real influence. Like they could actually accomplish things. Because to be made an ambassador by the emperor meant that he had given you his approval. He was lending you his influence. It meant that you could go into the world and you, everything you did represented Rome, the people who were a part of it, and everything that it stood for. It meant that your words were equal to the emperor's words as you spoke to the world. This was an amazing honor, but it was also a huge responsibility. And that's why Paul goes to such great lengths throughout all of his writing to help us understand how followers of Jesus are supposed to live is because we are ambassadors for Christ. And so regardless of how old you are, kids, students, adults alike, you have been given influence and you have been given an audience. And the responsibility of the message that you are carrying to those you influence and to your audience comes down to you. Are you sending a message? Are you carrying a message that mimics the, the message of our culture? Or are you carrying a message in an effective way of saying, I've been made a new creation. Like, I'm new in Christ. And honestly, uh, let, let's take a look at the NIRV and how they translate verse 20. It says, so we are Christ's official messengers. It is as if God were making his appeal through us. Here is what Christ wants us to beg you to do. Come back to God. And this is where our mission statement comes from. We exist to help people find their way back to God, not just to church. And every single one of us has a part to play in helping people find their way back to God. Because the fact of the matter is, your faith isn't just about you. Your faith is meant to be the driving force in how you live your life. Now, don't get me wrong. I know this can sound really intimidating and really overwhelming if you let it. But honestly, I probably get it wrong more than I get it right. Because it's so easy to get distracted by all of the shiny things of our culture and everything going on in our overly packed schedules. 
But that doesn't change the fact that the greatest priority of your life and mine is to represent Jesus to the world that he created. That means that my greatest priority is to represent Jesus to my wife, to my kids, to my extended family, to my neighbors, to the people I meet at restaurants, coffee shops, the grocery store, and anywhere else. And it's not because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm a new creation whose life is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's a big responsibility. And it can feel really overwhelming to the point that we become complacent. But also for some of us, like we read Paul's words here and we want to we wanna have a reactionary response like with our resolutions where we go from one extreme to the other and we want to start doing everything for everyone all at once. But that's only going to lead to burnout and that's an uh, unrealistic burden for you to even carry. Because look, if you have been, cha- if you've come to the foot of the cross of Jesus and you've left changed, you have a part to play in helping people find their way back to God. But it's not for, not for you to do for everyone. And it's one thing for us to make this our mission as the church. It's something else entirely for you to make this your own mission statement. By living, but living this way, you need to know it's going to, it's going to change you. It's going to change the way you live out your every day. It's going to change the way you see people, the way you talk to people. It's going to change the way you want to use your resources. And so I think a better way to approach living out being a disciple who makes a disciple is not to do everything for everyone all at once, but is to answer this question. Who are your few? Who are the people that are already in your life that you can start investing in with consistency? The people you already have a relationship with, but you know need help moving closer to Jesus. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about our role in reaching people for Jesus. And we're going to spend a lot of time um, unpacking what it really means to reach people for Jesus. Because that's what we see happen in the book of Acts. We see the church come alive with disciples who are making disciples and who are carrying forward this ministry of reconciliation that is still our responsibility today. And so if you're ready to make this move and you're ready to go with us to become a disciple who makes disciples, I want to ask you to prayerfully consider who are the few people in your life that God has placed there for you to invest in? Who are the few people that need your help finding their way back to God. Because it's not going to happen by just bringing them to church. It's not going to happen by just a few of us doing this. This takes whole church buy-in. And it's a big call. It's a big responsibility. But it's also a really, really impressive honor to be willing to to be given that responsibility. Look, we believe that this could change our entire church and not just our entire church. We believe that this could be a catalyst for a disciple-making movement. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 that the the harvest is plenty, but the, the workers are few. And we believe that this is the way that we can see God turn that upside down, not just at Genesis Church, but in our county, all throughout our state, 
and all around our world? Are you willing to make this move with us? I hope that you are, because there are a few people, I guarantee you, in your life that God has placed you in their circle for this reason. Please pray with me. God, thank you for this ministry of reconciliation. Thank you for taking the initiative to reconcile your creation back to yourself. God, it is a, it's a big honor to carry this message, to carry that message forward. And so, Lord, I pray that right now you bring to mind the one, two, three people in each of our lives that you have placed there so that we can help them find you. God, this is not something we take lightly. And so I pray that you will keep this at the forefront of our minds, not just today and not just this week and not just the first part of the year, but God, as we, as we live our life reflecting you, I pray that you will make this our driving force, that you love us so much that you want us to be a part of reconciling the world to you. It is in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.